Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I've got Zach Finkelstein, tenor extraordinaire, on the podcast today. Um, oh, stop. <laughs> uh, some of you may n- not know that uh, Zach and I just finished recording a CD of Britain's Canicles, which uh, is available now. Is that right, Zach? It certainly is. It's available on uh, Scrap Records. It's available on my website, zachfinkelstein.com, and uh, all the you know the usual stuff, Amazon, iTunes, Spotify. Cool. We'll get more into that later and uh, what made you want to record that work and uh, more about the music itself. But uh, first, I'd like to talk about how you got into singing and if that's something you'd wanted to do for a long time or if if it was something you suddenly decided to do. Yeah, it was. uh, I was actually I had a pretty late start in singing. So, um, you know, I, I grew up as an instrumentalist. I played tenor sax and piano, mostly jazz, um, and I had some classical background, but uh, I was mostly an amateur, um, especially through college. I did, you know, college a cappella. I did some, um, some, some classical singing in choirs, but I was actually, I studied politics and economics in undergrad, and uh, I didn't I didn't go pro or go back to school until I was about 20, 25. So I had a late start, um, partially allowed because I'm a tenor (laughs) and tenors. It's not fair. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, so I, I had another, a whole other career before I became an opera singer. Um, I was a political consultant doing polling and focus groups and, uh, and I, I basically just had, you know, the usual millennial quarter life crisis, um, back right. in 2009, um, when a lot of people were sort of reconsidering their options too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I met, uh, my, my friend from college, Ben Hammond came up and asked me to record on his album. Um, and he's, a he's a pop indie, uh, singer songwriter, a great, great guy based in Denver. Um, and so I sang back up on his album and I hadn't sung in five years and, uh, and this was sort of the, you know, come to Jesus moment where I was like, okay, well, this is what I need to do. So um, I basically went back to school at the Royal Conservatory of Toronto. Um, I graduated in 2011, worked my butt off, and uh, and then I just started working. And uh, you know, here we are. Now, what school did you go to? Um, I went to so I did my undergrad at McGill University in Montreal in mm-hmm. uh, economics and politics. I did I took some voice lessons there, but nothing serious. And then um, I studied at the community school at uh, the Royal Conservatory of Toronto in Canada. Um, with the teacher Bob Lowen, he was great. And then I, I sort of jumped into a, an artist diploma, and I had like no idea what I was doing, but they needed a tenor, I think. Um, so uh, there I studied with this great uh, teacher Joel Katz. And uh, after I graduated, um, I signed with an agent, and one of their stipulations was like, you have to study. You know, you're obviously like a work in progress, and we like you, but you, <laughs> you need some help. So. Um, one of the stipulations was I had to study with this teacher at University of Toronto, Lorna McDonald. And so I sort of, you know, did a lot of private study. Um, and she's the one who really built my technique from, from the ground up. So, right. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty dramatic, uh, jump from economics into singing. Could you pinpoint like a particular moment or event that happened that made you make that choice? Yeah. Um, I, 
I mean, it, it was basically, I was not where I wanted to be in my career. Um, I tried a lot of stuff. Like I, I had, I had gone to grad school in politics, um, at university of Chicago. Um, I was pretty unhappy there. I ended up dropping out. I, I was working as a pollster for a couple of years and, uh, you know, just constant traveling. It, um, it wears you down and I really wanted to be my own boss as well. Um, uh, so it, it was just a combination of things. And, and also my friend Ben coming to visit, um, you know, singing again, taking lessons and really discovering classical music as an adult. You know, I listened as a kid and my dad was a big consumer. So we were always listening to classical music in the house. But, you know, listening to an opera song at, at 25 is very different from when you're a kid, like it, just a, a very different, you know, life experience. And, and so basically, you know, coming to it late, I had a lot of my you know, economics and marketing background that really helped uh, build my career early on too. So it was just sort of a combination of those things. Interesting. I mean, on some level, you must have realized you had some talent to do it. I mean, it's not, you know, yeah, not everyone but... <laughs> can just show up on the scene and say, oh, you know, you know what I want to do today? I want to, I want to sing no, tenor and get that's paid. Super, yeah, that's super fair. Uh, you'd be kind of surprised, though, how many late starters there are out there, though. Um, maybe not Sopranos, but um, or maybe not late, but who started off in a different career. You know, a lot of a lot of my friends are were real estate agents or, or some other, you know, um, uh, type of career that allows you a lot of flex time. And, and uh, you know, Stephanie Blythe started out as a as an English literature major. And, you know, all these experiences inform inform our lives. But, yeah, I, I mean, obviously. <laughs> I don't live in like a soundproof box. Like I knew that I could sing. Um, yeah. I just didn't have, you know, there's a big difference between having a pretty voice and being able to tour and sing four or five hours a day and, and just constantly be on stage. And, and, uh, and, you know, the, there's, there's just a huge amount of work that's involved in building a voice. So I sort of knew early on, I was like, all right, well, there's like obviously some potential there, but, um, and as a kid, I mean, my whole family was musical. It was just sort of assumed like, Oh, everyone has a pretty voice. Everyone can play an instrument. Um, you know, my, my dad, uh, made sure we were all, we were all studying piano at an early age and, and we went to, you know, band camp. So, I mean, it wasn't unusual for me in my family to be like, Oh, okay, well there's, we all have musical ability, but they, they all went into, you know, successful science careers and, uh, I decided not to. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that there are quite a bit of late starters out there. I've, I one of the things that I've always thought was that you know you have to come with some substantial amount of raw talent in order to become a singer, and that just because, si like signing up for years and years of lessons with, you know, a voice teacher means that you'll be able to do all these things, um, and I you know I bet it's just like a a portion. It's like you need 70% portion raw talent and then 30% effort and discipline. But it's, it, it's, uh, I guess, uh, it's good to hear you talk about, or at least mention that, you know, there are, there are quite a few late starters. And in, in a way, it's kind of hopeful for people that, you know, think they might got a good gift and they can just, they can just give it a, give it a try and see what happens. Yeah, I, I would, I would do a caveat that, I mean, I, I missed out on a lot of opportunities because I was in another career. You know, people who went through the young artist programs yeah. got a lot of stage time, developed relationships with opera companies. That's something I'll never have and is of you know immense value if you get there. But the problem is a lot of a lot of young singers are 
you know, going to schools based on their name brand and having a teacher that for whatever reason, you know, maybe they're not internalizing what the teacher's talking about. Maybe it's just not a great fit. Maybe it's not a great teacher and they just have sort of lucked out by having a few star students. Right. Um, for whatever reason, you know, you can go through a whole undergrad and even a master's degree and still come out and not have a solid technique or really know how to sing. Um, and the downside of that is you've developed this one skill set and you're in crushing debt and you have no ability to get another job in another field to sort of like at least, you know, tread water for a couple of years while you figure it out. So, right. um, so I'm, I mean, there are, there are upsides and downsides to starting late. The upside is definitely, I had another career to build. Um, I was financially independent, so I didn't have to rely on donors or parents as much as, um, other young singers might. I went to school in Canada, so I didn't have debt. I mean, there were a lot of factors at play that besides just, you know, right place, right time. Yeah. I mean, I, I always imagine, and I don't, I don't know how the opera world is. I mean, I know there are other things to weigh when you decide to hire somebody, but I would think that if you made a good sound that they would be after you, um, rather than like a resume is important. And, uh, but it's, my my idea is that um, that they would weigh what you actually sound like over experience. Yeah, for for the work that I do, I would say that's one of the reasons I got out. I sort of like got out the starting gate pretty quickly. Yeah, um, is because a lot of what I do, my type of voice, I'm a I'm a light lyric tenor with a with a kind of like high top. Uh huh. Um, so so that that type of voice is you know very easily. <sighs> You know, you could put that into a Bach or a Handel piece and, uh, you know, you can float without a lot of technique and still sound pretty good. Yeah. Um, but um, but, you know, bigger voices have other challenges. And, you know, the opera scene, I've had some success in it. You know, I've had some main stage debuts, but the bulk of my work is is concert work. So and a lot of that is, you know, as as simple as someone hearing a clip on your website. I mean, it's really audio is critical. Yeah. Um, who you know is critical, and almost all my work now is word of mouth. I don't, I don't as audition as much anymore. Whereas, I mean, a lot of opera people are just constantly auditioning for new opportunities, um, and for that, it is really like, have you performed the role? Because it's a very, you know, for for a business that spends a bajillion dollars on sets and marketing and everything, it's actually quite a risk averse business, and they want to yeah. make sure that you can. Not that, you know, not only that you can sing the aria, but that you've, you've done the whole role because, you know, it's like a catch-22. They don't want to be the first ones to try you out. But if, if, if you never get there, you know, it's basically like everyone who's done the role gets the role. <laughs> yeah. And if you, if you don't get the role, I mean, if you haven't done the role, you can't get the role. So, um, but with concert work, it's much different. I mean, I've, I've been hired to sing things. I'm like, yeah, sure, totally. And then I'm like, who's that? Like, what composer? I don't even know the composer, you know? Um, so... Uh, it's it's just a, it's a different ball game in concert work. So, can you talk more about the circuits? I mean, I imagine you know. So you're in, uh, you do mostly concert work, and um, I also know about people that do mostly opera stuff. Um, yeah. Can you talk about more of these kind of specialties or or these sort of circuits as I've put them in my head? Yeah, I I wanted to be a generalist for when I was a young singer. I wanted to try and sing, you know, go out for 
Mozart roles and Donizetti and sort of, I, I understood that I had a lighter voice, but I was like, you know what? I have a, I have a pretty good shot at this. Um, but I, that's just not what I was getting hired for. And, and I was spending so much money on going out to these young artist auditions where they were hiring, you know, young Heldon tenors to sing, uh, you know, Il Mio Tesoro or from like Don Giovanni. So, mm -hmm. um, so it took me like three or four years of banging my head against the wall before I realized I should just embrace, embrace this circuit. But um, the, the opera circuit, uh, you know, one of the reasons I had I had a trouble breaking in early on is because um, there's a very clear demarcation of steps. So you go to a school, um, you do, a, you know, in your summers, you do something like Glimmer Glass or Wolf Trap or, um, you know, one of those major opera summer fellowships. And then after that, you apprenticeship for a year or two with a major opera company, let's say like you know, Lyric Opera of Chicago or Minnesota Opera, they all have these like young apprenticeships mm -hmm. and they, they hire all the small roles from there and they basically pay them less than minimum wage to do that. And so, you know, if you haven't done that, you can't break in because, you know, ideally you you get hired as a small role and then they trust you with bigger roles. So if you haven't done three or four of those, it's, it's quite hard to break in. And even if you have, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a vicious cycle because... Let's say, you know, let's say you're an apprentice with Minnesota Opera for a couple of years. You've spent two years of your, let's say, you know, 10 year young artist life, quote unquote, um, with one company. And, and you're, you haven't built connections in other cities. Uh, you haven't been able to work with other companies because they, they really just own you for nine months. I mean, the, the only time off you have is summer. So no messiahs, no, you know, maybe you'll get a, a, an excuse from a contract here and there, but you basically only develop one set of contacts. Mm -hmm. But when you graduate, there's another tenor that shows up and they're doing the small roles. So unless you are one of the lucky ones who gets hired to cover a bigger role, um, you know, there's not a great chance that that company will rehire you. I mean, it's there, you see it all the time, especially in Canada, there's kind of like one main company, the, the Canadian opera company, and a lot of singers funnel through there and, um, they, they don't necessarily get rehired by the COC. And then they're just sort of stuck in Toronto with no other options in a very high cost of living city. So that's sort of like the, the opera -y path, yeah. which I've sort of dipped my feet into. Like I've sung, I sang with New York city opera. I sang with grant, um, uh, grand Rapids opera, a couple other, like, you know, smaller companies, um, doing Baroque stuff or character tenor stuff. But I mean, like 80% of my work is, you know, new music or like weird concert stuff or like Bach and Handel. Um, mm -hmm. so, so the concert stuff for me was, I basically, uh, you know, I had an oratory, an oratorio teacher at my conservatory. Um, he hired me based on my class for a Bach thing. Um, and I, and then I just treated it like a, uh, like a marketing campaign. Like I, I tracked down every person in Ontario, which is where I was living, who, um, you know, I Googled like Mozart Requiem, uh, you know, over the last five years and figured out who was doing, uh, who was hiring, um, soloists and who was taking from the choir and I shouldn't even bother reaching out to them. And then who was just like way above my pay grade and it would be way too soon to reach out to those people. So I sort of segmented them into different groups and I, I reached out to them with, um, you know, recordings and said, Hey, I just sang this Bach thing. I just did a summer at Tanglewood. You know, I have some momentum. I have an agent now. Um, I'd love to come sing for you. So that's sort of, you know, I, I built it sort of regionally and then nationally that way. Um, mm -hmm. and it was all kind of my own, my own auditions, um, you know, word of mouth type stuff. Interesting. 
How much can an opera superstar make? Um, I I actually don't know the the, the upper limit. Um, uh-huh. but I know that people at the Met, you know, can make as much as twenty thousand a performance. But that's for like you know Posito Domingo. Yeah. Um, I know that you know there are people making very comfortable low six figures that you probably have never heard of. Um, uh-huh. Anyone who's performing at a at a house like Seattle Opera in the main role and who does you know six to eight of those a year is definitely making over a hundred k. But those people are traveling you know, 330 days a year. So, yeah. And, and there are a lot of expenses involved, like depending, and it, there's so many variables, like, um, depending on the company, sometimes they'll pay, pay you a flat fee and then they'll expect you to find housing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know for sure, but I think Seattle opera, you need to find your own housing. So there's, you know, and then some companies, uh, they'll pay your flight, they'll pay a per diem, they'll pay for, for your hotel. Um, you know, I, it, it just depends on the company, but generally, um, they're, they're making a, a good upper middle class living if they're working regularly. Uh-huh. But if you see someone's resume, that's like, they've been working for 15 years and they only list like six companies. Um, those people are obviously struggling a lot and it's such a feast or famine with opera because, you know, you only have a couple connections that you work with regularly and, mm-hmm. you know, there's turnover at companies, artistic directors change, people are just fickle. Someone else comes along. So, I've definitely had situations where someone was hiring me for tens of thousands of dollars and then was just like, Oh, here's a new tenor I like. And then I never heard from that person again. So, I mean, it, it just, it really depends. Do you feel like there's a huge, uh, pay difference between say the opera circuit and the concert circuit? Um, that's a good question. Uh, okay. So there's like different segments. So the people at the top of opera, um, and the people at the top of concert are both doing really, really, really well. Like, uh-huh. um, you know, Yuja Wang probably makes 20 grand a performance too. I mean, they're, they're, those people are doing really, really well. Um, the problem gets into, well, and at the bottom, they both make almost nothing. <laughs> so it's like yeah. the regional opera companies that are like, we need you for six weeks of rehearsal and you have to take every afternoon from work off and you have to find your own way to get there and we won't provide housing and it, it'll be $600. And so you basically don't make any money right. and concert work is pretty similar. It's just, it's just the advantage of concert work is there's less rehearsal. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, f- from a monetary perspective, obviously not from like a musical perspective, you want yeah. as much rehearsal as possible, but you know, uh, uh, most concert work is something like fly in on a Wednesday, rehearse Thursday, performance Friday, Saturday, fly home Sunday. And that will often pay the same as a, opera contract that takes you know between four and six weeks with a lot of prep work like rehearsals and staging and you know that type of thing Mm -hmm. interesting so what is an agent and what do they do for you okay an agent is sort of your your bad cop (laughs) like (laughs) you know if you don't have an agent it's really hard to negotiate Um, and not just because, you know, agents have power and singers don't, but because often, um, it's, it's a direct relationship between a singer and a conductor. And it's very, um, it's just very personal. Um, and you know, like, let's say, let's say you're a, you know, let's say you're a choral conductor and we're buddies 
and you offer me $400 for a gig and I say, I can't work for less than 600, you know, yeah, that's going to probably, you're going to be like, well, that guy's kind of a jerk. Um, (laughs) you know, screw that guy. Um, or at the lower end, there's just, there's almost no wiggle room either. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about, you know, hiring someone for a coral fee, there's just not a lot of wiggle room. Um, and so it's nice to have some to be like play stupid and say, Oh, I don't know what my schedule is. You'll have to check with my agent. And then my agent will say something like, here's his minimum fee. Um, and usually if, if it's a, you know, if it's an orchestra or like a, a pretty, pretty established chorus, that fee is, it starts at a thousand with an agent. Um, uh-huh. so that's, that's sort of like how you get to like a middle-class living is being able to work with companies who will pay you that much. And it's really hard to do that without an agent. That being said, there are people that do it and, and have some success, but it requires like a real self-starter. Um, and so they're like your front lines. Sometimes they arrange travel. Sometimes they don't. Um, oftentimes they'll arrange an audition, but most of the time I would say like, you know, 20% of my auditions come from my agent. The rest I sort of, I sort of, you know, find on my own. It's also a little different for me because my agent is based in Toronto yeah. and I moved 3000 miles away uh, against the, they mm-hmm. were kicking and screaming about that. But, uh, but yeah, I moved 3000 miles away and I'm, it's sort of like, you know, anything I find around here that's under a thousand, I'll just sort of quietly, you know, figure out on my own. So that's sort of the broad strokes of what an agent does. They find you auditions. Um, they, they, there's a big mailer that they send to every, you know, every major, conductor and symphony that you know helps out and in the exchange they take a percentage of your of your wages um and it's usually 10 percent for opera and 20 percent for concert mm-hmm. so um yeah that's that's sort of generally what it what it ends up being and it's it's been really helpful for me especially starting out yeah. um but i know i know people who are unhappy with you know, their agent, I mean, a lot of people, um, because there just isn't enough work to go around for the number of singers. It's really as simple as that. And, um, you know, any, any agency that, that has, you know, over 20 or 30 singers is really going to be spreading that out. So, um, especially in smaller markets. Um, and you know, if you're not, you know, from, from my agency in particular, like if, if a Bach thing comes up or if a Messiah comes up, I'm, you know, I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm pretty much one of the guys they think of regularly for that work. So they'll reach out to me. Um, if the guy says I need a tenor or not, I need, you know, so-and-so. Um, but you know, if you're not top of mind with your agent, then really there's, there's no point. So it's, it's, it's very helpful if you have a relationship with that person and you know, you are, you have the kind of respect and, you've you've delivered for them before but um but yeah you know results may vary yeah how many singers does an agent represent would they represent say a truckload of tenors or do they represent like a few sopranos a few tenors and um any idea about about that yeah it, it depends on the agency um usually so my agent i think there's uh, three full-time agents now and they have a support staff and i think they have about 80 singers Um, but, but they're sort of cutting down on some singers now and they're adding new ones. It's, it's always kind of changing, but, um, but yeah, usually it's like, I would say, you know, at least four or five people on a voice type. If it's just a one stop shop, like one person agent, which there are a lot of those, Mm -hmm. um, it's probably like 15 singers or something. So 
it really it really depends on the agency. Um, in the bigger agents, I mean, hundreds of singers. So, and it, uh, it really again, it, it's it's incredibly important to be sort of top of mind because if you're, you know, if there's 20 tenors on the roster, I mean, there are 20 tenors on my roster, but if you sort of like sort that by, you know, who's working in Ontario right now and and who's, you know, uh, done this role before and all that stuff. Um, it's actually only a couple people. So they, they have, you know, they have a lot of, uh, tenors, but, you know, there might be two or three big, big, big voice tenors or a couple, you know, uh, Verity tenors, a couple Mozart guys, a couple character tenors, and then a couple guys like me who are like, you know, mostly concert and if in a pinch, I can sing an opera role, no problem. Yeah. Interesting. Do you have to pay to have an agent? Um, you shouldn't. <laughs> if, if you do, <laughs> that's a problem. Um, no, generally they work on commission. Okay. Okay. And so it, it's it really it's really like you know you have to be worth it. You also have to be worth it enough for them to like go to bat for you. So if you're constantly you know whining about their them taking uh, you know twenty percent or you're giving them a hard time, I mean if you're only giving if you're only you know, making them a couple thousand dollars a year, they might not think you're worth the effort anymore and just kind of like quietly put you away. So there's like a really interesting dynamic, financial dynamic with agents. Um, I mean, not everyone on the agency is making them a lot of money, but it also, you know, every once in a while, a role will come along for a certain type of voice, like a, like a huge voice yeah. that'll, that'll sort of net them some, something. So, so they have a, an incentive to keep different types of voices on the roster. But if you see your voice type on a roster, it's very unlikely that you know they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna bring you in <laughs> and so uh one more question about agents uh can you have more than one or is that just a big no-no yeah you i know people who have i only have a north american agent um i know people who have an agent for europe as well and i think there's even agents per country in europe like they're they do it a little differently over there i i actually don't really work in europe um so i i, I can't 100 percent say but um i definitely know that um, multiple people on my agency have agents in Europe too. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. How, uh, how often, how many concerts are you doing a year roughly? And is that, is that, you know, because you want to do that much or because the work isn't, it, there isn't a lot of work out there? Well, I'm doing probably between 30 and 40 concerts a year anywhere from uh you know nova scotia to florida to new york to chicago and most of that is concert work so for instance my schedule coming up now uh and it'll be a good mix of you know passion a couple of passion projects i try not to do too many because they take just as much work as the actual concerts oh, yeah. um but you know for instance like i'm doing a, a cd release party next thursday and i won't make any money on that but it'll be it'll be sort of like a good you know, good experience to work in my hometown again and good for the album and, and just good all around. But, um, so, you know, for instance, next, so that's next week, then, um, you know, mid November, I have, uh, a local concert. So that's two, uh, and then two messiahs in Ottawa in, in mid November, that's four. Then December, I have three messiahs in Calgary, one messiah in Regina, four messiahs in Florida and three Bach cantatas performances in Seattle. So um, it's really seasonal. <laughs> and yeah. especially for my voice type, 
Um, I yeah, do they want that Messiah. Of... I'm sure they. I'm sure you're getting Messiahed out. I mean, <laughs> I bet that's I, your I wheelhouse right there. <laughs> it's definitely my wheelhouse, and I have no complaints. Um, but it's good to do a mix of things too. So, um, so yeah, and, and and next season I'm doing a lot of Bach too, but I'm also doing you know a new music performance in Guadalajara, you know, yeah. like cool stuff like that, and all that's word of mouth. Um, but I, I don't really have a lot of opera on the, on the ticket, just, um, sort of like a small company on, on Ontario. I'm doing a handles, um, Samson. That's, yeah. that's pretty much the only one on, on the docket. But, but yeah, I, I basically have like, I usually have a really busy spring and a really busy November, December, and then summer I can sort of, you know, actually this summer was pretty busy too, cause we made the album. Um, yeah. but, um, but yeah, you know, usually in the summer I'll have a couple of festivals here and there. And if I really wanted to work more, I could in the sense that I don't go out for auditions as much as I usually do, because um, I don't know how much uh, I've told you or your listeners have heard, but I also have another job. I work remotely from home. So mm-hmm. that keeps me sort of that allows me to be picky, um, yeah. which is is is, is, you know, something not a lot of singers have. Um, yeah. So I'm financially independent, regardless of whether or not I have messiahs. So I it's really just. Um, I'm, I'm sort of in like a middle career now where I can sort of, you know, um, I can't necessarily choose who I can work with, but I can choose who I don't don't want to work with. <laughs> Is your work sort of split between the two jobs? Are you spending like basically half your life doing singing and half your life doing your other gig? Um, I do. Th- I travel in general about uh, three to four months a year for music. Um, and as I said, I'm a concert singer and it's sort of like a Wednesday to Sunday thing. So yeah. that's actually quite a lot of gigs. Um, whereas, a, whereas, you know, three to four months for a straight up opera singer might only be two shows. Yeah. Um, so that allow, and it's pretty spaced out. So I have a good, you know, flex, I have a good flexibility and I'm, I'm not, you know, gone from my job for three to four months at a time, which would be probably a huge problem for them. Yeah. So I'm usually gone for like five days at a time and I, it's mostly on a weekend. So they're, they're, they're pretty cool with it. Um, and then the rest of the time I, I work remotely and I, I start at 7am and I end at 3pm. Okay. Um, and so that gives me two, two full hours a day during the week to practice and, you know, a little extra time to do admin for the album, like mailing, mailing review copies out and that type of thing. So, yeah. um, so I basically travel three months straight up for music where I'm only doing music. Um, although I do, I, sometimes I work from the road, but you generally, I, I try and separate it. And then when I'm home, I probably need another six months of preparation and practice Um, so even if I didn't have my job, I'd still, still be busy, you know, eight to nine months a year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you prefer broke stuff or over other stuff? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't at first. I, you know, like every, it's like every opera singer wants to, wants to sing, uh, you know, uh, what's the one? K, uh, the, the one with the high C, um, you know, everyone wants to be Rodolfo. Um, but you know, you get exposed to things and, and you, you hear things more often and more often. And for me, I, I, I just fell in love with Bach and I want to sing it every single day. And I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've learned how to sing it really well and it, it's, you know, fun for me. Um, yeah. whereas for a lot of singers, it's really stressful for me. It's just like, Oh, this is great. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if I had my choice, I would sing Bach every single day, all over the world. Yeah. Um, and you know, Messiah is great. I love Messiah. Um, but anything in in the sort of like sweet spot that's like, you know, right up in the passaggio and involves some nice Baroque instruments, I, I really like. How do you deal with getting sick on the road? 
<laughs> well, I have a cold right now. Yeah. Um, so do I, it's, actually. It's not a little bit great. Of yeah. Um, I generally try not to get sick. Um, you know, all the super crazy singer things like, you know, wash your hands, use sanitizer, sleep a lot, drink lots of water, um, that type of thing. I'm on a pretty particular diet for singing, too. Like, I have reflux. So, um, you know, controlling your diet. Um, exercising every day, um, those things. And if you get sick, there's really not a lot you can do. Um, I, you just shut up and try and do the gig. Um, I've yeah. only, I've never had to cancel a gig. I don't think for being sick. Um, but I have sung through gigs, some very large gigs, uh, being sick, um, particularly one in Chicago. And for that one, I went to the doctor and I, I took prednisone. Um, but that's like that? the last, uh, it's, it's horrible. It's a steroid. You never want to take it. Um, sounds awesome it's like you have a super yeah. voice for a second yeah it's it, it, it you feel like it but then it's like the effects wear off and you're like what have i done yeah <laughs> uh, um but yeah generally try not you know try not to talk as much as or only talk as much as you need and do all the super you know nerdy singer things like lots of you know tea with lemon and all those things but there's just nothing you can do i mean and if you don't sing the gig you don't get paid so yeah that would be a source was, of anxiety for me just yeah if, if you're constantly you know having to produce some solo stuff you know that that much it's just like oh my god i cannot get sick it's really bad for countertenors too i think because they they rely so much on on head voice yeah um and it just being having a cold just wrecks your head voice so yeah um yeah it for me it's it's a challenge like you you basically you can't um you can't alter your technique because of it so you have to you say, okay, this doesn't sound like it usually does, but I'm not going to push. I'm not going to, you know, mess with it. Cause it's, it's really easy to do to just sort of like chest it out and, you know, just people like, Oh, that sounded great. And then like all of a sudden your voice is a weird mess for like a month. So yeah. I just trust, you know, I have a really clear sense of my own technique and, and what it takes to do, you know, um, to have the right airflow and, and to place the sound correctly. And if it's a little, you know, if it sounds a little wonky or if there's not 100% verbato, uh, you know, because I'm I'm sick and and my, you know, my abs are like, stop, don't yeah. do that, uh-huh. um, <laughs> you know, and if my muscles aren't at 100%, that's okay. So I just, you know, and 99.999% of the time, no one notices or cares. And the worst is when singers like make their gig about being sick like oh like, yeah tell, tell everyone and like i often you know if i'm there and i'm i can phone it well i don't necessarily tell anyone it's not a secret but you know it's it's like it's like if someone enters the room and you say this guy's a huge clumsy dolt and he falls over <laughs> you say oh what a, what a clumsy idiot you know but if you say here comes the most graceful person in the world and they fall you say like what a graceful recovery so it's all about you know, setting it up absolutely um, for success. So if you if you're known as like the sick tenor, oh god, good luck. Yeah, it's it's bad. <laughs> That's so. So what is your ritual like? Specific ritual for getting yourself ready to sing a solo when you've got a cold that day? Um, I so I take a lot of drugs. <laughs> yeah. In general, like I have really bad awesome. allergies and I have <laughs> asthma. So all the things that your doctor tells you not to do, I do every single day. So I sing on antihistamines. I sing on, you know, nasocord, all that stuff. Um, so I'm already pretty much on the right regimen for that. I just drink like 20, like literally 20 glasses of water. Wow. Um, not in a row, but I, 
you know, you may have noticed I'm constantly carrying a bottle, bottle of water around and you just sort of feel when your cords are hydrated enough. It's, it's not a scientific thing, but you know, I'll just keep drinking water and drinking water until it feels right. Um, and, uh, just don't talk and sleep and, and do like yoga and Pilates and, and just, you know, do, I, I do a lot of warms up, warm up with, um, with a straw as well. Um, I find it's really good for getting your, um, folds kind of lined up properly. Whoa. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not a voice teacher. Um, but <laughs> I, I do play one. No, um, I, I picked it up, uh, from a coach a while back and then it just keep, it kept coming up as a technique um, that teachers use when, you know, people have trouble kind of like getting the, getting the breath moving. Um, so, you know, when we talk, we develop a lot of tension and it's, it's a really, it's a really good, I, I call it, it's called a, like a buzzing technique. So I'll do a little right now. Just no oh, sweet. Yeah. So I have, I, uh, this is a plug cause my wife works at Starbucks. I use the Starbucks straws. They're very, <laughs> they're plastic. They're great. Yeah. Great to travel with. So I do, you know, uh, those kind of uh gliding exercises so you put your lips on one end of the straw and then you just sort of sing through it yeah you sing through it and it's actually really good as well when you travel if you're like on a subway i mean it looks super weird yeah it does basically sing at full volume in like a small room and no one is everyone's like what's that weird buzzing sound but they're not gonna like be like who is that guy literally yelling at me (laughs) (laughs) and what does it do um, it just kind of like lines up your voice and your muscles and, and the, well, for me, the balance between chest and head is yeah. really kind of tricky to get, especially for tenor. Um, if you, for me, at, for my voice, at least if you bring up too much chest, it just, it's really hard to access the top, but if you don't have enough chest in your sound, it's not going to carry. So, yeah. you know, you get the hootie, like, Ooh, you know, that type of stuff. So, yeah. um, just making, you know, making sure that's lined up. It helps with that. Um, it helps with getting the breath moving. So that's that's one technique I use every day, and it really helps if I'm sick too. Yeah. Um, lip trills, tongue trills, um, you know, and and ooey 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 that type of stuff on like uh, on falsetto coming down um, to kind of get again. Just it's all about for me getting the proper chest head mix. Uh-huh. Um, and having a cold just it's like having a you know it's like your chest voice is like Swiss cheese. So just getting, you know, getting that proper balance is, is, you know, when, once it's there for me, it's, it's like talking, it's just, it's really easy, but it's just making sure that that's there. I love, we're getting a little clinic here from this, uh, Mr. <laughs> okay. I'm not a voice teacher, but, uh, I'm really I, not. people I'm are going to really love not. that stuff though. Um, <laughs> that's great. Um, so let, let's, let's switch over to the Britain canicles and, uh, uh, just say, say a bit about why you wanted to record that and, um, kind of how you did it how how you got funding for it and how you decided to choose your players and um, yours truly to record it and uh um and tell us uh, about you know what you like about it and um yeah yeah well i was really originally going to call it mark david obenza the obenzas but (laughs) (laughs) that didn't work right um so anyway i i you know back in the in the days when i was a a little bit younger as a young artist, um, I went to this program called the Britain Peers Young Artist Program in Alberta, UK. So that's where uh, I studied. I was basically introduced to the whole Britain repertoire. It was about a dozen singers, and we worked with Ian Bostridge and Julius Drake, and we just went through pretty much the whole vocal repertoire from A to Z. 
Um, we didn't get to, we didn't do all the canticles, but um, that's when I first heard Canticle Two, which is Abraham and Isaac. I mean, it's in the intro is just one of the most beautiful moments of choral writing I think in history. It's just the way that they write the he writes the tenor voice and alto as this you know as one voice um, coming in and out of dissonance is it's just an incredible mm-hmm. um, incredible piece. So that piece just absolutely blew me away, and I was like, it's perfect for my voice. Um, I also sang Canticle one in, in, in college. So I was like, this is a great fit. Um, and, and it was just clearly, um, you know, especially Canticle two, it just really spoke to me at the time. Yeah. Um, and their, their relationship between Benjamin Britten and Pierre Pierre really intrigued me because, um, you know, as a romantic, it was just so fascinating, um, to see uh, a relationship for 40 years where someone, you know, someone writes for the tenor voice for 40 years. And just this huge wealth of, I mean, dozens and dozens of major works, um, you know, Aschenbach and the Met, um, you know, every, every, you know, every Billy Budd, like all the, all the major Britain operas were written for one voice. And it just so, and that voice happened to fit my voice pretty well. So I was like, oh, well, I have to explore this. Um, and then I was like, you know, it, it was, I was only a couple of years into my singing career at that time. And uh, I didn't have my technique fully developed, but I was like, you know, once I get the right team and once I fully develop as a singer and have obviously the funds to do this, this is definitely going to be my first project. So uh, I sort of let that sit for a while. And then my wife and I moved to Seattle about four years ago, and I ended up um, performing Canicle 2 at uh, Epiphany Church up in Madrona um, with Byron Shankman. Um, who is, you know, local legend, Byron Shagman. Um, and, uh, and we just really hit it off. And I was like, you know, I'd been to his concerts before and I knew he was just a really well-established, wonderful pianist and harpsichordist. Um, and, you know, we just shared a lot of similar values and we really got along. And that's when I was like, you know, this is a guy I could, we could build an album together. Um, so, and because the pieces, um, you know, canical one, two, three, and four all are with piano and tenor. So it really is the basis of the album is, is the tenor and the pianist. So, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, and I've, I've worked with a lot of great pianists, but Byron was one of the first who I could tell was a real collaborator and wanted to, you know, really wanted to like work, work on it. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to pay you for a coaching session. I was like, let's be partners. So yeah, that's cool. um, that was, you know, and, and for an older, more established artist, that was, that's pretty rare to find, um, you know, it's, it's easy to find a partner just out of school where you're kind of coming up the ranks together, but for someone so established in the community who really wanted to form a partnership anyway. So I, so that was the basis of the album in Seattle. And I was like, okay, so, um, you know, and then I started thinking, who else could I do this with? Um, and you know, I had just been working with some amazing singers. Um, you know, I do a lot of messiahs and every once in a while it'll be like, I'm on the C list and they're on the A list and I'm at like the top of the C, like this, this gig is like the top for me and it's like the bottom for them. (laughs) So, So every once in a while I get to work with like true greatness. It's amazing. Um, and so I met a couple of those and one of them was, uh, Vicky St. Pierre, who's a contralto. Yeah. Um, and we did a Messiah together, the Dublin Messiah with Kevin Mallon in Ontario. It was like, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, rejoice in 12, eight, like it's a super cool piece. Um, and, uh, and she just blew me away as the, as the alto. And I was like, you know, she has, she's a contralto, but it's like, it's such a warm sound and she has such an incredible spin. And, uh, I just kind of had like a voice crush on her. So I was like, well, I, I want to figure out how to work with her. 
she lives in Nova Scotia, so literally could not be farther. But I was like, well, let's figure this out. And then I also did a, a creation um, at Kerner Hall in Toronto with this guy, Alexander uh, Hajek. And he's like the only person I've ever worked with who got like a belly laugh out of the creation. Like he literally had people like raffling. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, and there were a lot of, there were a lot of, um, you know, images of lions and, and you know, different animals in the creation. And he just like, I mean, he killed it. And, and I just thought, you know, that'd be really cool for Canical four where they're talking about the, you know, the camels loping around and, and he just had a real clear sense of the text and, and he was, you know, just such a great uh, performer to work with. So I reached out to both of them and they said, yes, which was great. And I was like, okay, so now it's just scheduling. And then I was like, um, you know, the Seattle symphony is, pretty amazing I've, I've worked at them once before and and you know maybe byron checkman can introduce me to some people there so i just reached out literally to the first chair uh harpist and hornist and we're like do you want to do you want to work on this album and they were like yeah i'd love to so so that's i mean i just basically just like reached out to people who are better than me and they said yes so that's kind of <laughs> how it worked. And, and then and then um you know i in terms of production i knew that I wanted to have someone with a really strong choral background because it's actually, I mean, it really is like a choral album in a lot of ways for mm -hmm. at least Canicles two and four. Like there's so much involved. Um, there's so much like nuanced, you know, piano singing. Um, it's, it's very opera. It's operatic in the sense that there's a clear sense of drama in the text, but it's, it requ it requires like a really good ear for blend. So, and we had worked together on burn ensemble and I just loved all the stuff you were doing with bird ensemble um and uh i was like this is my guy so i reached out to you so that's kind of that's kind of you know i didn't want a producer that was just like yeah that sounds great like i wanted someone to be like you're flat that guy sucks do it again <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of that's sort of how i came out and in terms of the funds i sort of estimated it at about ten thousand, which was <laughs> quite low um <laughs> but what are you gonna do um so you know i i um I sort of did some research on Kickstarter campaigns and I decided to go indie Indiegogo because, um, you know, it was my first one and, um, they charge a little more, but they also, you know, if you're like, if, if you, if you do a fundraiser on Kickstarter for $5,000 and you raise 4,900, you get nothing. Yeah. So I was like, well, that sucks. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, I did, I was basically like putting myself out there. I was like, I literally have no idea what's going to happen. I could be completely publicly embarrassed myself, but, you know, all the all the um, websites said you got to do a video, you got to do a video. So I did a video. Um, I designed it myself. Um, very talented videographer helped out with that. And then I just I basically launched my Indiegogo um, after we had done our first couple of recording sessions. So like early summer, we had some clips of Vicky being awesome on Canical uh, too. Um, and uh, and then you know it was just a crazy response. Like we I set the I think the Kickstarter was for. 5,000 or something. And we raised it in 24 hours. And wow. then we ended, we ended up at over, I think about 7,700. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, at the time I was like, Whoa, I almost <laughs> fully funded it. Did not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it ended up costing a bit more than that, but, um, you know, and, but it was, it was, you know, I got really lucky in, in the Indiegogo and I have some really supportive friends and family and, and, um, you know, I don't want to use the term fans. That's weird. But like people who have been to my shows who like my singing. Um, no, yeah, for sure. But, and uh, and yeah, so so that's and the, so far the sales have been going really well. So, yeah, good. I mean, I have to say 
you did get like the best people I could imagine for it, including yourself, <laughs> Mr. Zach. And oh, uh, it was it was an honor to be a part of it. Um, are you, you know, maybe too early after that uh, feeling that financial uh, <laughs> cost of it? But you uh, you wanting to do more of this kind of stuff, or did you see this yeah. as something to just sort of a marketing thing to try to get more gigs or a, a different kind of gig for yourself, or do you, is this well, sort of the beginning of of uh, more CD projects? Both. I mean, it was definitely, I was at a point in my career where I was like, okay, um, I'm pretty well established as like the Bach guy and like the Messiah guy, but like, here's a rep that, you know, gets done all over the world with like major symphonies, you know, like doing the serenade for a horn, uh, Britain gets done all the time. The Britain war requiem gets done all the time in the U S and I'm just not, I wasn't in that, I wasn't in that radius of anyone's knowledge. So, um, so a big part of it was just to get on the get on the radar with Britain um, because it fits my voice really well. And, you know, that's something I I, I really needed. So, so that was, that marketing was definitely a big part of it. And just to re-engage a lot of people I've lost along the way um, by, by moving 3000 miles. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the main problems with being a independent classical singer is you've basically given away all your relationship with your fans um, it's it's something that indie musicians do really well, and I actually have tried to steal from them in that sense. Um, you know, when I do a Messiah, let's say in Toronto or Ottawa or um, New York or something, um, what happens is I get hired through my agent, through through a presenter for an organization. They control all the ticket sales. They have everyone's information and emails. And then I just show up, maybe they'll advertise my name, maybe they'll just say, you know, the so-and-so symphony's Messiah with selected soloists, never mentioning my name. And then someone will come and maybe there'll be a program that says my name, but maybe there won't. And then someone will come and say, oh, I really like that tenor. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, as concert gigs work, you know, you usually, if you have a good relationship, get hired, you know, every other season would be like a pretty good gig you know? Yeah. Um, so I come back in two years and that person's gone. I have no idea where they went. I can't reactivate them as a fan. So, you know, part of this was just like kind of taking back the audience for singers. And really the only way to do that is to do an album. Um, uh-huh. you know, there's just no way to, there's no way to do 15 concerts a year in every city that you've sung in. It's just not possible, but you know, someone in Chicago could buy my album yeah. Someone in Toronto could list, take a, listen on Spotify and, and um, you know, subscribe to my website, which, you know, these things have happened. And if I get enough people in each city, I'm, I'm definitely going to do another recital there. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was just taking back control of my audience from, um, you know, we've, we've really, as, as musicians, given it completely away. Mm-hmm. Um, and without, without that, there's just, you have no, you know, if I can't say I can get 100 people to show up, um, you know, I've, I basically just give all control to the orchestra or the presenting organization and whatever they pay me, they pay me. Um, so that was a big part of it. And, and I, just from an artistic perspective, you know, I do a lot of the same repertoire and I really wanted to go outside, uh, you know, outside my comfort zone. I mean, this is just a brutally difficult set of pieces and, you know, take a big chance and it, it seemed to have worked. And, um, and I, I really would like to do another album. Um, I'm sort of thinking in the back of my head, John Dallin, but, but, uh, that's not hundred percent, but I, I, you know, if I could do an album every, you know, 14 to 18 months, I, w- I would, and maybe I will. <laughs> yeah. Have you considered starting a local concert or recital series? There, there's a lot of it in Seattle. It's just not, oh, yeah. there's, there's, it's very, 
um, it's very like serialized. It's sort of dribs and drabs and everyone has, you know, can bring 20 or 30 people to a concert with the exception of Byron Checkman, who regularly brings like 400 people to Nordstrom, you know, recital hall. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, everyone's got their own little thing. And, um, and there's another great group, uh, Henry Lebedinsky. He has a crew here that do Pacific Music Underground, and they've hired me. There's another guy, Brian Armbrust in Seattle, who does the Seattle Art Song Society. He's great. So everyone's kind of like doing that right now. Yeah. And because my time, you know, not to sound snooty, but like I, you know, I work two jobs and I and all my music has to be focused on like learning for the next gig or kind of like building my base. Um, so any, anything admin based, I just, I, I'm trying to get off my plate. No, I feel um, you. So, so starting, you know how it, I mean, you know how it is just in terms of running bird ensemble. I mean, oh, yeah. just like getting, getting people to show up and learn their music. And I, I, you know, that's a skill set. It's a skill set I have, but I'm using on my other job right now. And I don't want to like do that again. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, that makes, that makes total sense. Well, um, well, it's been great having you on the podcast, and I appreciate you uh, sharing with us stuff about the ins and outs of being a, a pro tenor, and, um, you know, wish you the best of luck. Thanks a lot, Mark. And, uh, yeah, I, I uh, hope everyone got something out of this, and it was a lot of fun chatting with you. And if people want to follow you on social media, uh, how can they do that? Um, Twitter, at Zach Finkelstein, I think, and then at uh, Zach Finkelstein Tenor on Facebook. Um, and then my website is zachfingelstein.com. So I'm sure you can spell that in the notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll link, I'll link to all that stuff too. Well, thanks again, Zach. And, uh, hope to work with you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Mark, take care.